Interesting clipping was given to me. I have a copy on my desk, and I had mentioned to the gentleman who handed it to me that I was going to mention this to you just before the sermon today, because it has to do with what I want to talk about. Jesus' life story disputed. Book claims Christ married and descendants live in Europe. I'd like to read it to you briefly, because I saw it the other day and I'd included it in my notes. Our new book, and it's going to be made apparently into a play or maybe even a movie, alleges that Jesus married Mary Magdalene, and that they had children, and that those children are living around in Europe and in England today. A sensational new book titled Holy Blood, Holy Grail makes these assertions about Jesus Christ in contending the accepted story of his life is utterly wrong. First, discovery of ancient documents hidden in a small French church gave the first clues that the story of Christ's life hadn't been told properly. Secondly, his supposed execution by crucifixion was a hoax staged for reasons that remain unclear. Third, he was married and fathered children, and his bloodline extends to modern France via certain aristocratic families. These are but highlights of the book published by Delacorte Press. It will sell for $15.95 a copy here in the United States. It's already available in Britain, where it's created wide discussion and sales are soaring. The authors are Henry Lincoln, British documentary producer, writer, and poet, Michael Bygent, psychologist, teacher, and photographer, and Richard Lay, an American who lives in Britain and lectures on historical mysteries. We had not, in the beginning, ten years ago, set out to prove or disprove anything, least of all the conclusion to which we have been reluctantly uh, led, the authors say. We had certainly not set out to challenge some of the most basic tenets of Christianity. On the contrary, we had begun by investigating a specific mystery. We were looking for answers to certain perplexing questions, explanations for certain historical enigmas. We could not, and still cannot, prove the accuracy of our conclusion. And that's interesting. One book came out several years ago who claimed Jesus Christ was a mushroom, and that the mushroom was a, an hallucinogenic, and it was like an aphrodisiac or something that gave persons hallucinations, and when they chopped it up in little pieces and they roasted it, then either they ate it or they smelled the odors of it, whatever they did, and it was kind of like marijuana, and it was just like marijuana, as you may know, in Spanish is Maria y Juana, and it's shortened down to marijuana. It really means Mary Jane, because when the Mexicans used to smoke marijuana, I guess they thought they saw Mary and Jane or whatever. But anyway, this is really weird that uh, Jesus allegedly was just a name for this kind of a drug substance that these people used, and later on they talked about Jesus Christ instead of Mary Jane, and of course the guy that wrote the book made a lot of money. Several years ago there was a man who wrote a book in England, seems like England is a place that fosters this type of thing, called The Passover Plot, and in it it was alleged that the Passover was a complete hoax, that he had actually taken some kind of a drug where there was no pulse visible that they went through the fakery of entombing him, but his disciples came along, stole the body, and of course the entire Christian religion was based upon a hoax. Well, once in a while you hear from people who have made the same mistake that perhaps sometimes we are tempted to do when we become disillusioned with human beings, with our fellow man, or even with church and religious leaders. We sometimes tend to doubt God. We begin to blame God, and we begin to investigate our religious underpinnings, and suddenly we have received a traumatic shock that has challenged our very credulity. We go back to square one and we say, well, is there a God? 
And is there really a Jesus Christ of Nazareth? And is the Bible really his word? Now, at various times in our lives, even the most mature, long-time Christian person can have traumatic problems in their lives which can lead them to doubt. Doubts begin to assail their minds, and because of the human difficulties they're having, because of disillusionment with religious leaders, and they hadn't realized that they had begun to subtly transfer their faith from what should have been faith in God and the Bible and in Jesus Christ to a man, and then as the years went by, blissfully unaware that they were actually having faith in a man or faith in a religious organization or a church or just everybody in the constant attending at church and all the things that the church was doing. Now, when a lot of things came along just like a cold bath that just shocked them and began to challenge the belief in this man, well, then suddenly they began to think they were doubting God and they were doubting Jesus Christ. Maybe you've had that problem from time to time. I received a letter from people who had been in the church for many, many years who said they'd gotten into a lot of heavy drinking and they'd kind of become frustrated. They drifted very, very far away from God and from church attendance and any belief at all in religion. But gradually they had found their way back and they described the experience and how it was. It was like a big door had suddenly been opened. Perhaps they reached a new plateau of repentance, as Mr. Dart mentioned in the Bible study. So probably we've all had our moments of doubt, of wonderment, of becoming disillusioned, of going back and questioning the very roots of our faith as to whether or not there is a God and whether or not the Bible is his word and whether or not Jesus Christ really did walk out of that tomb. Now what you're dealing with is a death of a human being, just as human as you are, and there's nothing uglier or more traumatic, of course, than death. We've been treated to the grisly scene of accidents, such as the 737 that slammed into the Washington Street Bridge, killed a couple of people in their automobiles, and of course many people drowned or were killed by the impact in the Potomac River. Later on, after they said that the DC-10 had slid into the bay out there at Boston Harbor and that all people had been saved, it was determined by the passenger list that a couple of people had in fact drowned. Their bodies have not yet been found. Almost any given night on television, you will see bodies. You will hear stories of children. This autistic child who was burned to death in Dallas the other day, of tragedy after tragedy, of murder and so on. We're dealing here with a story of death, of a terrible, brutal beating, of allegedly a completely public crucifixion, of a public burial, of an armed coterie of soldiers who were specifically placed there to prevent any such hoax from being perpetrated as either his disciples or the Jews or anyone else stealing the body away. And the story that we have is allegedly from eyewitnesses. Now, the only trouble is that the only eyewitnesses we have are the writers of the Bible itself. We don't have any shred or scrap of evidence in profane history from any of the soldiers who were there for all of the various mystical documents that keep cropping up in some little church in France or in Italy or somewhere else, or stories about a shroud, or stories about the robe, which was a sensational book and later a sensational movie, or stories about bits and pieces of the cross, and they allege that if they could take the bits and pieces and fragments of the crosses out of all of the Catholic Church in the world that they would have enough to build 45-room houses. But uh, be that as it may, 
we do not have, and of course, isn't it interesting that people would rather have profane history as their documentary or their source than the Bible? People would feel a little more comfortable if there could be some Romans, some soldiers, or some people who were there and say, oh yes, I remember, although I've never been a, you know, a member of the church. I was never in the Christian church, but I was there and I saw it. That would be very comfortable for Christian people because then they could have a profane testimony, meaning a non-inspired one. Well, what about these living eyewitnesses who were writing about all of this and going about the business of preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God in all of the Jewish and the Greek world, who went through some of the most hideous privations and hardships, as the Apostle Paul did and so many others, who lost their lives who were butchered, who were tossed into wild animals, and who, of course, were the original apostles and the disciples and those who became the evangelists and the very foundational underpinnings of the New Testament Church of God. Who were these people? Let's take it question by question as to whether or not some of the accusations, like in the Passover plot or this current book that has been written and some of the accusations of the Jews down through history have really been true. First of all, his enemies stole the body. Let's deal with that one. Think about that for a while. Who were his enemies? Well, they were both the Jews, divided up into their several sects, of the Pharisees, the Essenes, the Sadducees, the Herodians. The general populace, of course, were pretty much in favor of Jesus Christ, but the hierarchy in charge of the temple and the synagogues were certainly not. Also, the Roman soldiers. Most of them were ill illiterate, they didn't know how to read or write, they were conscripts, they were mercenaries from North Africa, from various of the provinces to the east and even on up into the British Isles and elsewhere where they had been conscripted and put into the Roman legions. It was either that or, or maybe be chained to a seat in a Roman galley. And of course they were very brutal men. They didn't have any particular hang-up about Jesus Christ except that where they saw a Jew being put to death, they rejoiced in it, they cheerfully gambled over his clothing, and of course one of them actually put Jesus to death. And why he did it exactly is not clear, but certainly they have to be counted among the enemies. Now, if the enemies stole it, let's investigate, first of all, whether or not the Pharisees or the Sadducees or any of the Jews could have possibly stolen that body. How would you answer that allegation? What would they have done with the body if they could have gotten past the Roman soldiers, which the testimony of the Bible says they didn't, have somehow rolled that huge stone away and then taken his body out of the tomb? What would they have done with that body? Well, I think we all know they would have paraded it joyfully and triumphantly through the streets. Now, in the first place, it was impossible because their law forbade the touching of that body. They would have been completely corrupted and defiled had they done so. And, of course, they had set the stone at their own request because they were allegedly trying to prevent his disciples from stealing the body. The story had been circulated very widely at the time of Christ's crucifixion that his own friends would try to come and steal the body away because why? Well, because he, it was known, had predicted his own resurrection. And because he predicted his resurrection... The leaders of the Jews wanted to make sure there was no hoax, no chance for some big explosive belief in this man, whom they thought was an imposter, to try to stage a resurrection. So they went to great lengths to make sure that that tomb was sealed as virtually no tomb had ever been sealed. 
Now, I've been there, and you've seen pictures of it. There is a tomb which obviously was new and had never been used before. It wasn't even quite finished. Some people had suspected it was made or it was owned of Joseph of Arimathea. But it's at the place that is called Golgotha. Some few in this room may have been there. And right in front of it is a huge big stone trough. And that trough gradually narrows as it goes downhill. Somehow they had put into position a huge stone, and it was perfectly round, like part of a millstone, up at the top. And then they just knocked the chocks out from under that stone that kept it wedged in position and allowed it to roll right down to where it stopped against the wall as the little trough that guided it got narrower and narrower. And that just locked this huge stone into position in the trough, and then it butted up against, of course, the stone wall there, and there it was, completely sealing, probably, oh, twice as big as the wall behind me, and perhaps uh, four feet thick or so, I don't know, but a huge quarried stone of maybe hard granite or something, wedged securely into place. Now, it would have taken probably a hundred men and maybe several teams of horses or mules to have dislodged that stone. They could have chiseled it loose, sledgehammers and uh, metal chisels of some sort. They could have gradually broken it up into a pile of rubble. But the eyewitnesses said that the stone was simply rolled away. So while we're dealing with the fact, the physiological evidence of the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus Christ itself, let's deal with another part of the, of the supposition that many of the enemies have presented, that he was only in a kind of a stupor, that he was drugged so that his pulse wouldn't appear, and that later on he came to in the tomb and managed to get out by himself. Well, now, if several teams of horses and probably a hundred Roman soldiers would be required to roll a stone away, then how would a person who three days and three nights earlier had been in that tomb for all of that period of time because nobody claims that he came out within hours or the next day or the day after that, all of the eyewitnesses say that the stone wasn't rolled away and the Roman soldiers weren't found struck as if dead there, lying inert and unconscious by a bolt of lightning or something or a great earthquake that occurred until three days and three nights later. How would an emaciated, starving, weakened person who had been in a kind of a stupor, drug-induced, be able to roll a huge stone away? Doesn't make sense, does it? So the first allegation that his enemies stole it just makes no sense at all. They went to great lengths to make sure that body stayed in that tomb. If they had taken the body out, they would have displayed it everywhere, but their own law said that they couldn't, and of course they were outraged when it occurred and did everything they could to stop the growth of this so-called new religion. Second question is just as ludicrous. His friends or his, disciple, his disciples stole it. Well, how can that be, in the first place, when the eyewitnesses tell of how they were scared half to death, that they were huddling behind closed doors for fear of the Jews, that they thought at any moment that they too might join him on the stake or the cross, that they might forfeit their lives if they were discovered, and they were hiding out, they were very furtive in their movements. And again, the same questions come up about the size and the weight of the stone, about the fact of the Roman guard that the only event of any of them approaching the tomb was after the tomb had been opened and never before that time. And, of course, at the request of the ladies who saw that the stone was open, a couple of the disciples, John and Peter, went running up there to look at it and actually looked in the tomb after the stone was rolled away. Now, secondly, 
very quickly, within a few months after the beginning of what we might call the New Testament church following the day of Pentecost, James, the brother of John, was beheaded. Very shortly, Stephen was stoned to death. Very shortly after that, other people were put to death, until gradually the New Testament becomes a chronicle of the martyrdom of the early apostles, and later on, after many, many years, virtually a full, rich lifetime of effort, of hard work, of suffering, shipwreck, beatings, imprisonment, privation, fasting, praying, finally spending over two years at a time under house arrest, and sometimes actually in chains, a man named Paul was perhaps thrown into the arena itself at Rome after he once said, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, and while the exact method of his death is not clear, it is supposed that the Apostle Paul was actually thrown in to the lions in the arena and was public sport for cheering rabid pagan Roman masses. Do men willingly allow themselves to be stoned to death, impaled, sawn asunder, skinned alive, boiled in oil, crucified upside down, stabbed, speared, or eaten by lions for what they know to be a deliberate hoax. I mean, I've heard of such sensational things as the great train robbery of England back in the early 1960s where there were about 20 men involved. They studied the movements of this train, delivering sacks of brand new 20-pound notes to the central bank, the old lady of Threadneedle down in London from all the North Country banks. They got a lorry and a couple of Land Rovers. They figured out exactly which overpass to do it. It was a military-like operation. They attacked the train, uh, removed all the last seven or eight cars, drove the two cars on up ahead with a baggage in it, broke into the baggage car at gunpoint, knocked out a couple of people, and it took them about two hours of unloading those sacks after sacks after sacks of hundred-pound notes and disappeared into the countryside. Well, it was a space of years before they were all gradually tra uh, trapped and captured. But, you know, thieves do fall out. And almost always, you will have a gang of people, and they will turn on each other. They will begin to spill the beans on each other. They will give other people's names. Almost always, when two or three or five people are involved in some kind of a crime, you catch one of them. He says, I'm not going to take the rap alone. I'm not going to suffer by myself. And he just sings like a canary, as they say, and reveals the names of all of the others. Do you think that for year after year after year, decade after decade, clear to the end of the first century, that people would continue to give their lives, not a one of them ever breathing a word to a wife, to a member of their family, to a child, to a trusted friend. Nobody ever had a little bit too much wine and got a little bit of a loose tongue and said, hey, it's not really true. There was never a single leak in all of those decades where people died in the most horrible ways because of the belief that Jesus Christ of Nazareth did, in fact, walk out of his tomb. There's no logic to those ridiculous charges of the Jewish race of people, to the enemies of Jesus Christ, to the so-called higher critics, and to these once-in-a-while idiots who come along to try to make a fortune on supposition that Jesus Christ really didn't die and wasn't resurrected. Let's take a look at some of these appearances and see whether or not these accusations make any sense in the light of what the eyewitnesses themselves said. In the 16th chapter of the book of Mark and verse 9, 
And the comma here is placed by man. It should read, when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. And she went and told them that had been with him as they mourned and wept. Now, it did say that, first of all, Mary Magdalene was there. And, of course, it does show us that even later on after Mary's visit, the other two women came while it was yet dark. And when it's still dark, it's not even quite false dawn yet. It's always darkest just before the dawn, they say. And that's before so-called false dawn, when the first little bit of a ray of light begins to show in the eastern horizon. So it was still dark. It was probably not a bit earlier than 3.30 to 4 a.m. when the first group of women and Mary Magdalene came to that tomb. I know the Protestants want us to believe it was a sunrise uh, rising. It certainly was not by any manner, shape, or form. That's another subject, but it's absolutely proved that Jesus was crucified and buried on a Wednesday, that he was placed in a tomb shortly before sunset on Wednesday afternoon, and that he was resurrected shortly before sunset on that Sabbath, and that he had actually been out of that tomb before those women came. She went and told them that had been with him as they mourned and wept, and they, when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen of her, believed not. Now, we're going to see over and over again the reluctance of every one of these people to believe what had happened. And this is dealing with human nature. You can really understand that. Here were people who had been continually kept on tenterhooks because they thought at any moment that Jesus was going to start his revolution. That is the basis for my book called Peter's Story, is that human element of what Peter and these other young would-be revolutionaries thought about that marvelous human being, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, with his incredible, miraculous powers of God, with his tremendous visionary statements, with his dreams, with his early morning prayers, with his continual corrections, with his absolute tremendous uh, reign on his own passions and energies with his control over his own life. They, they admired him. They loved him. But he also frustrated them half to death and time and time again. They wanted him to go ahead and assert his authority. They wanted him to make the big move and march on Jerusalem. And they couldn't understand why he refused to do it. They were always puzzled by the fact that he said, my time is not yet. And when he would talk about the fact that the Son of Man must be betrayed by sinners and delivered into the hands of his enemies, and after three days he must rise again, it just frustrated them beyond all belief. On one occasion when he was inveighing once again about what was going to happen to him, the Son of Man is going to be delivered up, and Peter grabbed him by the shoulders, and he shook him, and he said, No, my Lord, it shall not be so. Peter carried that sword, you know, and he thought, I'm his bodyguard, I'll protect him. And Jesus sternly said, Get thee behind me, Satan, for you savor not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. And rebuked him because Peter had allowed a little bit of a, a whisper from Satan, who was right there, of course, unseen, invisible, but trying to influence the disciples. And, of course, didn't really see and understand the great plan of God that had to be fulfilled in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So even though she told the others, verse 11 of Mark 16, they believed not. They doubted. They just didn't believe it. They discounted it. It couldn't be true. Now, verse 12, after that, he appeared in another form unto two of them as they walked and went into the country. And there's a greater version of that over in the 20th chapter of John. And they went and told her unto the residue, neither believed they them. Now, in the first place, as we will see in John 20 a little later, even the two to whom he talked for a long period of time, a lot of conversation. 
And then he finally began to open understanding and began to expound a lot of the Old Testament scriptures to them. He even sat down and ate with them, and then their eyes were opened, and they understood it was Christ, and immediately he disappeared. So then they wanted to rush and tell the others. And they said, guess what happened? They went through it moment by moment, all that was said, just where they were, the way they felt, what he looked like, what he said, how he ate. And all of that eyewitness testimony that perhaps took 20 or 30 minutes or more on the telling was completely discounted by the ones who listened to it. They believed not. They didn't believe them. Afterward, verse 14, he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. Christ appeared not once, but many, many times to two three, to one at a time, to James separately, to the Apostle Paul separately, to seven, to eleven, to more than five hundred brethren at once, as we're going to see, and later on spent approximately three and one-half years with, with the Apostle Paul in the deserts of Arabia long after he had even been assumed up into heaven and had commissioned the disciples. Now, beginning in verse 15 is the commission that he gave, and I won't read that. We're very familiar with it to get along with some of the other examples of the appearances here. So let's go now to Luke 24 and verse 34. The Gospel of Luke right here beginning next to Mark 24 and verse 34. I'll read up to it and just skip along to the 24th chapter beginning in verse 13. This is the appearance. We've only given a few verses in Mark's Gospel about it. Behold, two of them, verse 13, went the same day to a village called Emmaus. And it tells of how in verse 14 they were talking about everything that had happened, and it came to pass that, verse 15, while they communed together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. Apparently God had to do with that and purposely allowed them to be confused and not to understand who he was. And he began to ask what this was they were talking about. Incidentally, one of them was Peter. We know that a little later on by verse 34. It doesn't tell us right here. Two of them, Luke tells us, one of whom was Cleopas, verse 18, answering unto him said, Are you only a stranger in Jerusalem, have not known the things which are come to pass here these days? As if, where have you been? It's been the biggest tumult you've ever heard of. These things, as it says later, were not done in a corner. And he said, what things? He said, well, concerning Jesus of Nazareth. And it's interesting that perhaps Jesus was a little bit curious and was just almost toying with them and just letting them go ahead and to find out exactly how they would tell the story. He wanted to know their state of mind. How would they recollect what he had said? How would they characterize what had happened? What kind of futility of hopelessness or what kind of courage or hope did these men entertain in their hearts and minds? So he let them go through the entire story and relate it to him. It's kind of interesting when you try to analyze why did Jesus want them to do that and go through that exercise? What was in his mind at the time? Verse 22, Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished. And they said that this was a vision that he was alive. Verse 23 and 4. Then it says that he began to call them, verse 25, fools and slow of heart to believe all the things that the prophets have spoken. Should not Christ have suffered these things and enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses probably clear back there in the third chapter of Genesis about bruising the head of the serpent or Satan the devil, he began to expound all the scriptures in the Bible concerning himself. Well, they were just fascinated. They didn't know who this man was. He'd rebuked them and began expounding these scriptures, but they still didn't understand. The day was just about over, verse 29. They wanted him to spend more time. They sat at meat, verse 30, 
And he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And that act, which was so poignant in their minds because of the Last Supper scene that had been only 50 days earlier, or 53 days earlier, was so fascinating to them that immediately their eyes were opened and they knew him. And it must have just shocked them beyond belief. And as quickly as they understood, they must have gasped for breath, he vanished out of their sight. And then they began to say, we were so excited, it was like our hearts were burning inside of us while he talked with us by the way. So they rose up, verse 33, the same hour, now it was dark, and went to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together, as we saw before in the briefer version in the book of, of uh, Mark. And they said, verse 34, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon, meaning Simon and Cleopas, the two. And they told what things were done in the way. So again, here's a, a breathless recounting of eyewitnesses to a group of reluctant listeners of all that had happened and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. And as he, they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them, suddenly appeared. Again, perhaps they're indoors, behind closed doors, inside probably what was a stone building. And suddenly, there is Jesus standing right there, and he said, Shalom in the Hebrew to all of you. Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and affrighted and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And he said unto them, Why are you troubled and why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Handle me and see. Now that's some kind of witness, isn't it? Come here and grab a hold of my arms, my hands, touch me, handle me, and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as you see me have. He didn't mention blood, because Jesus had died through the shedding of his blood. There was no blood left in his body. But he manifested himself in that identical body. It was the same body. But God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, was now able to actually change human physical flesh into spiritual essence, and at God's powerful bidding, at his will, by divine fiat, manifest that spiritual body back instantly as flesh, and then instantly again disappear and take on again his spirit form. Totally miraculous. So he said, a spirit hath not flesh and bone, as you see me have. Any contradiction? No, because at the time that he allowed them to handle him, he had manifested himself as flesh, and he was flesh again. Now, later on, he became spiritual essence again. And when he had thus spoken, verse 40, he showed them his hands and his feet. Why the hands and the feet? Well, because, and apparently the Greek, by the way, this is perhaps a misunderstanding of the, the church of God for many, many years, and many other people too. There may be quite some, uh, I think, sense to this. I'd have to perhaps ask some medical doctors and uh, people who would really know. But it has been proposed that instead of actually having the nail right through this bone that you can feel in your hands and of the hand itself being nailed together and bearing all the way to the body, that that would actually rip through the flesh and that it would not support the body. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. If there was, as some pictures of the cross depict, a place for the feet to rest, which I believe is false, and I can tell you more about that at some other time because I think in brief that he was actually on an upright pale, that his hands were over his head that they were nailed together by only one nail and not outstretched like this, that he was not impaled or, that is, affixed to a cross. Whether it had a horizontal bar or not is a real question of history. Uh, Hislop's Two Babylons, Bullinger's Companion Bible, and other references 
tend to say that there might have been an upright pail rather than a cross, and that the reason for the breaking of the legs was so these people could not continually heave themselves upright to get air, and that eventually people who were crucified suffocated to death. Now, God was going to make sure that the perfect sacrifice of the Lamb of God did not suffocate. Why? Because even in Hebrew law, things strangled were unclean. Christ was going to die by the shedding of his blood. It could then be that when the soldiers came along and did break the legs of the criminals on each side of him, and they came to Jesus and found he was already dead. Remember that? There was a reason for that, and apparently the Roman soldier who killed him made sure that Jesus died by the shedding of his blood. Now, the point is that I am making that there may have been reason to believe, as some are proposing, that the Greek word means wrist, the continuation of the hand to the wrist. And you can feel there's a spot right in there that apparently right between the bones of the hand and the wrist is where that, that spike was affixed, rather than in the hand itself. I don't know for certain that that is so. So he said, Look at my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit has not flesh and bones, as you see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. Now, verse 41. And while they yet believed not for joy. Now, I guess they were ecstatic. They were elated. They were excited. It was like people who were perhaps on a game show. When you see people that uh, uh, suddenly win a few thousand dollars on a game show, they go absolutely crazy. They can't believe it. They're incredulous, and they're jumping up and down like a group of grade school kids at recess. And uh, they just lose all dignity and all sense of propriety, and they suddenly revert to a childlike state, and everybody is just clasping everybody else and screaming at the top of their lungs and making perfect fools of themselves. And they just can't believe it's true. Well, there is that state of mind when you can say, oh, it is, I can't believe it. It's too good to be true. They still didn't quite get it. It hadn't sunk in yet. And wondered, still wondering, talking about it volubly, probably together, he said unto them, Have you here any meat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and of a honeycomb. And he took it and did eat before them. And again, there is another very normal day-to-day -day human act, something that they had been accustomed to for all of these three and a half years with Christ, of him actually eating fish, sometimes that he had prepared, no doubt, with his own hands. And so this simple human act, again, was a proof that what they were seeing was a resurrected, living human being, the identical human being, with the wounds and the scars, and those scars we could portray as being grotesque, almost beyond your comprehension, because he was beaten within an inch of his life, and the very flesh of his back, of his chest, and even of his face itself were totally lacerated. And he said in the one psalm, you know, I can tell or count all my bones, perhaps even some of the ribs were visible. So he took it and did eat before them. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spoke unto you while I was yet with you. It's like saying, Look, I told you so. Isn't this exactly what I tried to tell you? And you wouldn't listen. You wouldn't pay attention. Now it's happening and you're incredulous. You can't seem to believe it. But isn't this what I told you? That all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then, and this took the Holy Spirit to do this, to intervene directly in their mind, he opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures 
and then the next two verses that have become virtually a hallmark of this work of God. He said, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. I don't know why people would ever lie by telling other people that I don't believe in the name of Jesus Christ. Surely they've got to be either deliberate liars or just so completely out of touch that they are just, well, I don't know what to say, but how they could do that. And, of course, my two books, one is called The Real Jesus and the other is about the life of Christ as viewed by Peter. But certainly anyone who says that just doesn't know what they're talking about. That is the main theme of what I preach. And, of course, what we do preach must be in his name. You cannot go before people preaching a so-called gospel and then explain to your constituency how you must never, never talk in the name of Jesus Christ. What was it that caused the Jews to stumble? Who was the stumbling block and the rock of offense? Why did they reject the truth of God? It was that name. It was that personality that they rejected. And we cannot do the same thing and still call it the gospel. Beginning at Jerusalem and verse 48 Notice what he said, you are witnesses of these things. Now, those men could have been filled with sodium pentothal, so-called truth serum. They could have taken every lie detector test that you could ever administer, and their stories would have jived, it would have matched, they would have repeatedly said the same thing. They were truthful, accurate, dedicated, convicted, absolutely convinced I witnesses of these things, and the reason they were so powerful and so believable is because they believed so powerfully. Let's notice a little further on in the 20th chapter of John, now that we've come to the end of Luke. Turn back to the last couple of chapters of the book of John. And in the 20th chapter, beginning in verse 26, But Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came, the other example of which we just read. He let the others handle him. He said, see, here are my hands and my feet. But Thomas wasn't there on that occasion. Now, perhaps the whole 120 were in some of these groups. And on one occasion, we don't know which one, whether up at Galilee on the mountaintop or Galilee by the seashore. But on one occasion, to which Paul alludes a little later on, there were 500 believers who actually saw Jesus Christ. But Thomas, one of the 12, called Didymus, and apparently that was a, a quirk of Thomas' nature. He was from Missouri. He was a doubter. He said, show me. He said, you've got to prove it to me. I'm not going to believe it until I see it. I don't think that he was called Didymus later, and perhaps that is really the sense of this. I don't know. Maybe John and others put that appellation on his name years later because he was the one who doubted. But I take it that he was a doubting kind of a person. He wasn't easy to convince. Was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples, therefore, said unto him, we have seen the Lord. And no doubt they didn't say it that simply. This is merely the reporter's version of what happened in a very shortened form. They probably went into a lot of detail. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails. I don't want to just see it. He could paint it on. It could just be some dried blood. He might fake it somehow. I've got to put my finger inside the hole the nail made, said Thomas, and thrust my hand into his side. I will not believe. Now, what about the ludicrous charges by enemies of Christ, by enemies of the Bible, who say his disciples stole the body away? The Passover was a plot. The whole thing was a hoax. 
when the eyewitnesses didn't want to believe, continually refused to believe, they were incredulous, and they had to have it proved to them time and again. And of course, Thomas is the epitome of that disbelief, of that rejection of the resurrection, because he said, I'm not even going to want to see a wound with some dried blood on it. I've got to put my hand clear inside the wound. And after eight days again, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. And then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then said he to Thomas, Reach hither your finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side. Can you imagine what that would have felt like? Now, of course, your body is warm right now because of the movement of your bloodstream. The reason your body is warm is because of friction. And around your body is an aura of warm or heated air about three inches out in all directions from your body, and you lose about 40% of all of your body heat right through the head. A lot of people don't know that, and so when they get outside, either in hard sunlight, they don't cover themselves with a cap, or they get outside when it's real cold, they don't realize by just putting a cap on they could prevent a lot of heat loss. And when they talk about wind chill factor, they're talking about the scientific reckoning of exactly how cold it is relative to the fact that the wind will whip away from you that little envelope of heated air that is real close to your body. You could hold a thermometer out here about a foot away, it would have a certain reading. You could hold it within an inch of your body, it would be several degrees warmer. And then, of course, put it on your body, it would be much warmer yet. But that's from the friction of the beating of your heart and the circulation, and I mean rapidly. That old heart is beating away, and instantly, I mean every few pumps, your blood is making a complete circuit of your entire body. And it's under a lot of pressure in there. It's really pumping away. Now, Jesus didn't have a bloodstream anymore, you see, even though he manifested himself as a human being. So you can imagine what it must have felt like to Thomas as he put his hand deeply into a womb. It would probably be just like you uh, taking a couple of big beefsteaks out of a cooler or a refrigerator and putting your hand in between that icy, cold meat. And it just shocked Thomas. I mean, he was dumbfounded. He actually thrust his hand into the body of Jesus Christ. And Thomas was so stunned. He was just in such awe. It overcame him emotionally so that he said, My Lord and my God. And he gave right there uh, a very emotional, heartfelt testimony that he was completely convinced and Jesus said unto him one of the most profound things that I think we need to pay attention to in this message today. Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Now, what about us? If we had actually been there, would we have been any different? I mean, for all of our training, now some of us, of course, have sat in church for a little longer than three and a half years. But humanly and carnally, if we had not yet been baptized, would we have acted all that different from the way the disciples acted? Here were a group of people we would, might, we, would, we would perhaps be tempted to envy. If I could only have lived in the days of the apostles, say a lot of people. Oh, if I could have only lived in the days of Jesus, a lot of very sincere Christian people have felt that way. If I could have heard him in person, I would have stronger faith. If I could have seen him and listened to him preach listened to him pray and sat at a meal and watched him eat, I would have had stronger faith. Really? Well, look at Judas. Judas was one of the twelve. 
Satan whispering in his ear because of Judas' desire for money and power and the desire to kind of tamper with Christ, to kind of fine-tune Jesus, make Jesus over into the kind of an image that Judas thought he ought to represent. And so Judas would scheme and plot and try to plan to try to, you know, just knock some rough edges off and kind of get Jesus Christ to be a little more polished the way Judas imagined he ought to be. And, of course, Judas was a thief, and so his conscience was continually killing him. And whenever people are wrestling with a great amount of guilt, they do not act rationally. Stop to think about that. When you're wrestling with a lot of guilt in your mind, in your heart, you're going around just feeling, especially toward an individual that you know you've wronged, you've said something against, you've somehow mistreated, and you feel guilty about it, you're not going to act rationally. Now, there was a great deal of guilt in Judas' mind, and he was one of the twelve who was right there, living with Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and instead he, earned, he, he turned around and actually hated Jesus before it was all over. When he saw that he'd brought about his death, he repented himself. I don't know how deeply that repentance will be reckoned to him later on in the resurrection. And he went out and hung himself. He couldn't stand himself. He gave the money back. He threw it right at the door of the treasury. He tried to give it back. They said, that's your problem. We've paid you. Forget it. He tried to dissuade them. It was too late. And he committed suicide. So of the twelve, let alone the hundred and twenty, Jesus had a lot of doubters. What about the time when Jesus talked to the whole hundred and twenty and said, I am that bread of life that cometh down from heaven, except you eat of my flesh, and drink of my blood, the scriptures that we will read again every Passover season, you will not have eternal life. And some of them said, this is a hard saying, and who can receive this? And they turned away and left him and wouldn't go with him anymore. And that's when he turned to Peter and said, Peter, are you also going to leave? And he said, Lord, to whom shall I go? You have the words of eternal life. So there were doubters throughout the personal ministry of Jesus Christ. Don't say just because you would, would have been there that your faith would be stronger. Jesus says to you today, blessed are you here today because you haven't seen. You haven't read an ancient old Roman manuscript writ, written by the very soldier who, placed, who, who stabbed the spear into Christ's side. You can't walk up here and open the lid of a huge ancient old iron-bound ebony chest and finger the robe that was on Jesus' body when he was buried. And neither do I believe in the story of the shroud. I just do not because of my firm, absolute belief in the Word of God, the Bible, and because I do not believe, even as God would not allow the body of Moses to be discovered and to be used by Satan the devil, do I believe for one instant that the very burial garment which had enclosed the body of Jesus Christ and in which they actually have even a face with its hair, think of it, even with the long hair there to try to perpetuate the myth of the way that face was supposed to look, this so-called Shroud of Turin, I do not believe it for an instant. No matter how many people would attest to the idea that it is supposed to be accurate, and also, if you look into the biblical account, you will see that there were two different garments, and instead of, in, of, of encasing them in a big shroud where it was like a big long sheet, they lay him down and folded it over to the feet and then wrapped him in some way. Oh, no. His head was bound separately from the body, and it said very clearly that it was folded neatly and set in a separate place. So he says to us today, Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples. doesn't tell us what they were. 
miraculous, no doubt. What if, as they began to become friendly and they were talking, and they began to exclaim among themselves about it, he had said, in answer to a question, Lord, can you do that again? And he would have said, well, what? Well, disappear like that and then appear again. Wouldn't you be curious? Wouldn't that make a marvelous movie if people could write it correctly the way it might have really happened? And he might have said, well, sure. Then just step over here and walk through the brick and just walk back through the brick again. They'd all walk over and they put their hands on the brick. It says here that many signs Jesus did in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. And a lot of people don't believe what's written in the book. But Jesus did a lot of things that aren't written. But these are written, says John, that you might believe. So John says to us, these are written, and there are plenty of them, and they ought to be sufficient. That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Now, you know... It says a little later on, in wrapping up the Gospel of John in the 21st chapter, and we see here another appearance, and I want to come to that right quickly, that the world could not contain, meaning couldn't stand or couldn't comprehend, all of the things that Jesus did. Notice in the 21st chapter, verse 1, After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and on this wise showed he himself. They were together, and this is the last chapter of my the last few paragraphs of the book called Peter's Story. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel of Cana of Galilee. He was the ancient sage that, you know, had uh, been so convinced that Jesus was the Christ very early in his ministry. The sons of Zebedee and two other disciples, so James and John and two others were there. Simon Peter said, I go fishing. Well, they were out there in the boat, and they saw the man on the shore, verse 4 and 5, who called out and said, Do you have any meat? And they said, No. He told him to cast the net on the right side of the, sh of the ship, verse 6. We then remember how Peter flung himself into the lake and he went swimming over there and they came out and already there was a fire, verse 9, of coals and fish laid thereon and bread, not the fish from the catch, but fish that somehow Jesus had just caused to appear there. And Jesus said, bring of the fish which you have now caught. And they had 153 of them, a big fish, so many the net was almost broken. And Jesus said, Come and dine. None of the disciples durst ask him, verse 12, Who are you, knowing that it was the Lord, but they were afraid. Now, you'd have to try to put yourself in that position and know exactly what was going through their minds. It had been some time now. They'd journeyed, perhaps by shanks mare and by camel or donkey or something, all the way 90 miles north to the Sea of Tiberias or to the Lake of Galilee. And here he was, and they didn't want to ask him a question because perhaps they would have been fearful of a rebuke if they had said, Are you really the Lord? He would have perhaps said, Well, are you slow to believe all of the prophets have said all over again. So they didn't ask him. Jesus took bread and gave them and fish likewise. So several times after his resurrection, he went through the simple human process of eating meats such as fish or honeycomb or bread before them. Now, this is the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples when they were in a group, the whole group of them together, after that he was risen from the dead. So when they had dined, they finished the meal. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, do you love me more than these? I won't read through all of this. This is the time where Peter knew what was coming. And for the third time, using a different degree of love each time, Peter had to finally say, yes, I do love you, love you with all my heart, love you deeply, love you without reservation. And Peter was told, feed my sheep. 
And then Jesus prophesied that Peter would die in some terrible way. He said in verse 18, Verily, verily, I say unto you, when you were young, you girded yourself and walked whither you would. But when you shall be old, you will stretch forth your hands, and another shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This spoke he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said unto him, Follow me. Then Peter was a little bit curious about John who was the one who was leaning on Jesus' breast at supper. And he said, Lord, what's going to happen to him? Verse 22, 21 and 2. And Jesus said, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. I've given you your orders, your commission. You and I have this personal relationship. John and I have this personal relationship. Your relationship with me doesn't clutter up John's relationship with me. You follow me. And then I'll turn to John and I'll tell John, you follow me. Don't follow Peter. You follow me. You see the personalization of Jesus' calling and commission to even the disciples themselves who became apostles? John later reveals, verse 24, this is the disciple which testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. He's saying to all the other people who lived at that day, we know what I'm writing here is the truth. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written, every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Now, that certainly can't mean that there wouldn't be enough buildings to stack all the volumes. That isn't what John is saying. But the word contain, meaning couldn't tolerate, couldn't stand, couldn't comprehend or contain in the sense of, of understand all the things that could be written. And again, John is saying, what has been written in this book? ought to be sufficient to believe that Jesus Christ of Nazareth really did rise from the dead. The first chapter of the book of Acts, they see him actually ascending up into heaven. Chapter 1 and verse 3, it says, To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them on again and off again, various times, many of which we've gone through, forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Then with their own eyes they see him, verse 8 through 10, taken up into heaven above. A voice comes back and says, Why do you stand gazing up? This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Now over in 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, let's turn to that quickly. There's a great deal more we could go into. Galatians, the first chapter, and how that relates to the book of Acts. The Apostle Paul's three and one half years with Jesus over in the deserts of Arabia. But in the 15th chapter, he begins to expound the very basis, the heart and the core of what the gospel is all about. Moreover, brethren, verse 1, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received and wherein you stand, by which the knowledge of that gospel also you are saved if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. Now, what did I preach to you? What is that essence of the gospel? I delivered unto you first of all that which also I received. How that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Can you improve on this formula. Can you take that statement, I delivered unto you that knowledge, which if you keep it, 
is going to result in you being saved and going into the kingdom of God. Can you now pervert and twist this message into a palatable package to deliver to Chinese, Filipinos, Koreans, or Arabs? And can you tell the Chinese, the jinn sent me? Can you tell the Arabs, I represent Allah? Can you go to other pagan peoples and find out the name of their concept of God and give them a message that if you will follow the way of life that I discovered many, many years ago, a way of sharing, of serving, of giving, of helping, instead of the way of taking in and of getting, you will be saved. Or is this the message that must go, yes, even to Gentiles? Is this the message that went to the people who couldn't tolerate the sound of that name and who would put you to death for speaking in that name, but instead of the early New Testament apostles finding a way around the name of Christ and saying, we will preach about the coming of Messiah, because they understand that. We won't antagonize our dear Jewish brethren by the name of Jesus Christ. We will talk about the coming of Messiah, like an Old Testament God. There's no problem with that, as long as we talk about what the prophets said. I believe in the prophets, too. And the Apostle Paul said, How that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Kephas, or Peter, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part, he's telling them, if you want to go check, that whole group of people, wherever they're scattered today, most of them still down there around Jerusalem or up around Galilee, the greater part of them are still alive. Go and prove what I tell you. Ask them. Ask hundreds of them. 370, 480, 500 of them are still alive. Ask them one after another and see if I'm lying to you that they too saw Jesus Christ and they know what they saw. Now, was it mere hallucination? Was it an ecstasy? Was it a dream? Well, do people in widely separated parts of the country, in groups of two, three, five, seven, eleven, twelve, and five hundred, keep dreaming the same dream all the time and for no reason? Well, of course not. And of course, when you don't want to believe it, when you're reluctant, and when you've got to be like Thomas was to actually have the physical touch of your hand inside a womb, there's no way all the excuses people concoct to try to tell you Jesus Christ of Nazareth is not alive today are ever going to be borne out. There is no way that this cannot be the absolute rock-solid fact of God, the truth of God. That he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James. We don't know elsewhere in the Bible when that occurrence took place, a separate occurrence apparently. And then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1 and 2, the apostle Paul said, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen our Lord Jesus Christ? That was the very stamp of his authenticity. I saw him as one begotten out of due season. Last of all, he was seen of me also as one born or begotten, as the Greek word should read, out of due time. 
Now, in verse 11, therefore, whether it were I or they, whether it's I, Paul, or they, all the other apostles, so we preach, meaning that we saw him, he is alive, we're preaching the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and so you believed. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you there is no resurrection of the dead? And before the end of the ministry of the apostle Paul, people were already beginning to doubt, beginning to wonder, wonder how the resurrection is going to occur. Is Christ really alive? Did he really rise up? And the doubt has persisted ever since. So the next time, if you become a little bit doubtful or disillusioned, probably because of something some other human being does to you, if you have to do like I do once in a while and go back to the absolute beginning, the grassroots of your belief, the very foundation of your belief, I like to begin with, well, yes, but I know God exists, and I go through the basic proofs in my mind of the existence of an all-wise creator God. I can focus in on any little thing, even in this room, that light, this microphone. I can begin to deal with laws of the natural physical sciences. I can begin to deal with chemicals, with the cleavage properties of minerals, with the way concrete and mortar hangs together, with the makeup of a rock or a stone. I can watch a bird fly across the skies or pick up a leaf and look at it, and I can know that God Almighty designed that, that he sustains it, that he is alive today. If you ever wonder, you perhaps need to remember the words of the famous recessional written years ago that I will conclude by reading to you, which says over and over again, lest we forget lest we forget. Now, this is an old English that Kipling wrote. It's dedicated, basically, to the British people at the time of the absolute height of their empire, when they did rule over palm as well as pine. It's quite eloquent. It's been made into a beautiful song, and sometimes it is used in poetry. It reads like this, God of our fathers, known of old, Lord of our far-flung battle line, beneath whose awful hand we hold dominion, over palm and pine. Lord God of hosts, be with us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. The tumult and shouting dies, the captains and the kings depart, still stands thine ancient sacrifice, and humble and a contrite heart. Lord God of hosts, be with us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. Far called our navies melt away, on dune and headland sinks the fire, Lo, all our pomp of yesterday is one with Nineveh and Tyre. Judge of the nations, spare us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. And this could apply to our country today, perhaps to some church organizations as well. If drunk with sight of power we loose wild tongues that have not thee in awe, such boasting as the Gentiles use or lesser breeds without the law, Lord God of hosts, be with us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. For heathen heart that puts her trust in reeking tube and iron shard, all valiant dust that builds on dust, and guarding calls not thee to guard, for frantic boast and foolish word, thy mercy on thy people, Lord. Amen.